Matthew. Oh, come on. Matthew has a M-A-T, not M-A-R. 16. Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. Now, uh, verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his, his disciples, who do people say that I, the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was a Christ. Uh, that last verse is because they, aren't, they weren't willing, they're able, others, to understand what he meant by, I'm the Messiah. They're still thinking political realm. In fact, the disciples were still thinking political realm. But what he does say to Peter has two levels. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Upon this rock, Peter, I will build my church. And there are two levels to that. One is a confession that Jesus Christ is the Son, the Messiah. And he is the gospel. That's what it is. And he will build his church on that message. But the second one is that Peter would be the first one who would build that church. Now, we don't mean it in the way of the Roman Catholics, which said he's the first pope, and there has been an unended succession from Peter all the way up to today. But you look at the book of Acts, and who's, who leads the group? Peter. He's the one who preaches the first Sunday. Well, why didn't, you know, I have my favorites. Why didn't Andrew preach the first sermon? Because he was not the rock. Peter was. Peter was impetuous. Maybe he, maybe Andrew was all set to stand up and go, and Peter just got right in there. I don't know. Wasn't there. I don't have a video recording of it. But Peter begins the church, and he was the first pillar. Paul, after his conversion, says, I went down to Jerusalem, and I talked with Paul and James and maybe a couple others. Pillars of the church. Because they recognized Peter was the first leader. And one of the first things that happened, or one of the things that happens in, in Acts is Luke writes about Peter, and then all of a sudden the whole emphasis turns to Paul and his missionary work because it fits in with his desire. So Peter and the proclamation are what begin to build the church. And Peter and the others continue to proclaim that Christ is the Messiah, he is the anointed one, he is the Savior, the uh, prophet, priest, king, son, and Lord, as the Apostles' Creed says. And they begin their work, and all of a sudden the church takes off.
And that's what the chapter of Proclaim Kingdom is meant to show us. The church taking off. If you have your book, page 141 is a reminder from where we have come. Where we're looking at the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God being God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And we saw the pattern of the kingdom in paradise. We saw the perversion of the kingdom, my phrase, not the author's, after the fall and the destruction that started. There's a promised kingdom with Abraham and moving into Canaan and uh, the blessing that would come through Abraham to all nations. Not just to his own lineage, but to all nations. You have the partial kingdom where you have the Israelites where they take over the promised land and they are given the law and a king. Uh, where you have someone like uh, David who conquers from Suez all the way up to the Euphrates. It is one of the powers of the world. And Solomon continued that in a time of peace and it grew to be quite wealthy. I mean, the Queen of Sheba, which is down in Ethiopia, a little further, she travels all the way up just to talk with this guy. Our leaders fly all over the world to talk with people, and they can do it in a matter of hours. To travel that way took a matter of maybe weeks and months, but just to go talk to the guy. That's his fame. Uh, and that's part of the partial kingdom. And then you have the breakup that takes place because they did not fulfill Deuteronomy 28. You will be blessed. If you do, you will be cursed. If you don't do what I told you. And you consistently see them doing that. So at the same, at the same time, uh, we have the prophesied kingdom. That is, God sends his prophets to remind them of what they have done wrong and to show them partly what's going to take place. And you have the talking about a remnant, and the inclusion of nations, a new temple, and a new covenant that is coming, a greater covenant. Uh, again, that's the sense of new. New is not like, I got a brand new car. It's right off the showroom, never been driven before. Versus, I got a brand new car. It's got 35,000 miles on it, but to me, it's new. And it's a whole lot better than the car that I sold to buy it. Uh, that's the sense of a better, deeper, stronger covenant than the old. To where we are now into the present kingdom that Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Be baptized. Because wherever the king is, there's a kingdom. Right now, country of the United States is over in Singapore. I mean, it didn't take 30 or 320 million people and put them over in Singapore. But that's where our president is. And where the president is, that's a, that's a country. Wherever the king is, that's a kingdom. Uh, and Jesus Christ is the true temple, the true tabernacle. And he's the one who purchased the new covenant and the rest we have. So now we're into the proclaimed kingdom. And this is where the kingdom moves out from its locality into all the world. 
uh, as it says in Acts uh, 1, you will be, Acts 1, I think it's verse 8, you will be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world. So it begins located in the capital city of Jerusalem. It begins with 40 days after the resurrection, 10 days waiting for Pentecost. Pentecost comes and the, the church is developed in a new form. It's not a new church. The church started with Adam. Adam and Eve before the fall were the first church. After that, they started uh, that church and it began to branch out. But when you get to uh, Jerusalem, they say, now, okay, you go to Judea and Samaria, the surrounding parts. And the, the part about that that is so astounding is that he would, Jesus would say, Samaria. Because the Jews went, Samaria? Yeah, we had to travel through there because Jesus took us there. But good Jews have nothing to do with Samarians. They are an amalgamation of beliefs. They aren't the real people. They don't have pure lineage. They couldn't even come to the temple if they wanted to. But that's where the church goes. To Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the world. So by the end of Acts, Acts 28, you have Paul in Rome, the center of the world, the known world at that time. Not necessarily China, Australia. Now, who wants to go to Australia? Come on. I want to go to New Zealand and see where they filmed The Hobbit. But, but Australia? Come on. Not, uh, not down south in Africa or over in the North America. But it had gone to the very center of power, of prestige, of everything that was working in that area outermost parts of the world. So you see the proclaimed kingdom. And the, the reason it got there is that people took the message of Jesus wherever they went. There is an Acts, I think it's Acts 8, this little phrase, it's the beginning of uh, yeah, Acts 8, says, and Saul approved of his execution. That's the execution of Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, comma, except the apostles. The only ones in Jerusalem were the apostles. And it says, Saul was a devout man buried Stephen and made great lamentation. Everybody else, every other Christian was taken out of Jerusalem, thrust out, except for the apostles. And when they went, they began to proclaim. Uh, some people say, well, this is the job of an apostle, of a pastor of, of evangelists to go pro pro proclaim. And this verse showed, no, every other disciple did. So when Paul wants to go persecute and prosecute disciples, he's going up 
north, not after the apostles, but after the other disciples. And there, he is going to uh, try to put him in jail uh, on the way he encounters Christ. But they already had churches, house churches, groups of people who gathered together to worship. And it is because the common, what we call the common Christian, non-ordained Christian, was the one who was out there working, proclaiming, we know Jesus is the Messiah. That's it. So that, that's, in, a, in essence, the book of Acts is that proclamation. What you have with the epistles, the epistles are the letters that some of the apostles wrote or wrote underneath the auspices of the apostles to help churches understand how then shall you live in the light of the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, we have this idealized picture of the church, the early church. I mean, this is in its purity, in its wonder, the golden age of the church. And I hear people, and if I've seen it on some churches, we're just a first century church, or we want to become a first century church. I say, really? You want heretics in it? You, you want apostates? You want people who are immoral to, the, to a degree that even the pagans wouldn't be immoral? You want to fight? And I'm afraid, yeah, they're doing very well being a first century church. <laughs> this is, you know, first century church, it was messy. It was horribly messy. In fact, as someone once said, the evidence that there is a God is that there is a church after 20 centuries. <laughs> because it's always been messy. There's been no golden age of the church. And so you have this young, inexperienced, growing community of followers in different areas that are trying to figure out how do we be the church. And to these people, the apostles or underneath an apostle apostolic authority are giving instructions how then to live. Um, what they're trying to do is what is in that first section of the lesson on the kingdom of God. They're, they're trying to be God's people. The new improved Israel. The new Israel that is better than the old one. That they want to be more obedient to the word. They take seriously God's blessing and curses. And they take serious what God has done in Christ. It's a fulfillment of the Old Testament. And so they take just as serious, if not more serious, the Old Testament than they did before Christ. Because they don't try to border it with other rules. They let it speak to them and who they are. So that's what they're trying to do. You also see as in 1 Peter 2, 9, that the apostles understood that the early church was the new people of God. That this is how they define themselves. 
that in verse 4 it says that you have come to him a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourself the living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. From that I've always taken that, that God is in the process of building his cathedral. He's working on it for 2,000 years. And it's slowly getting put together. He's got the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And then he's building up on top of it. And some people are the stellar people that stand out. The Wycliffs, the Augustans, the Anselms, the Calvins, the Luthers, and others who are like the sparkling stones that you see. Most of us are just the stones, but help build. Some of us may be on the outside where people see, and some of us may be the stone that helps to put together the bathroom. Okay? But every stone is important. You can't build a bathroom and take out a few stones. Otherwise, the building will begin to crush it. We're all important, and it's beginning to rise and to be a holy sacrifice, a, a living sacrifice, spiritual sacrifice. Then he gets to verse 9. And he says, this is the reality of who you are, people of God. You are a chosen race. Hmm. Sounds like what God called Israel. You are a royal priesthood. Notice the two offices put together. You are kings, you're royalty. And you're a priesthood. You're a priest. In the Old Testament, you didn't combine those two. In Christ, all three were combined. And now in the church, we are kings who are priests. A holy nation. A nation set apart. That we are no longer just individuals. And no longer just individuals from certain areas of a world. We are one nation. A holy nation. That you may, a people of his, for his own possession, a people with whom he can do whatever he wants. And that's what he's working to do. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy mercy. That passage is, reminds me of what Paul said to the Colossians. When he's talking about his prayer for him, the end of that prayer, first, chapter 1, verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. For instance, over on this side, it's the kingdom of darkness. That's what you get for coming in late. You're the kingdom of darkness, <laughs> okay? And what God <laughs> has done is he has taken you out of the kingdom of darkness and he has transported you, transferred you into the kingdom of his son, of light. See, that's what conversion is all about. That's what becoming a Christian is all about. And Peter is saying, that's who we are. 
Once we didn't know mercy, now we've experienced mercy. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. And brought together. And that's what the church is. But it took time to understand that. And it was messy. It was, it was not neat and clean. It's like most things that happen. It was really messy. But they became and understood themselves to be God's people. As the Ephesians 2 passage talks about those who are outside, no hope, no light, nothing. Now you are inside. If you go further on in that passage of Ephesians, you are now a family. You are now the people of God. You are now his temple of the Holy Spirit. So that's the kingdom of God's people. Then you have God's place. Church of a new temple. Jesus is the true temple, but he is building a temple here on earth. And he is doing it by people. Um, that First Peter 2, 4 to 5 is uh, the passage that I've, I like to understand that. He's putting us together little by little. In six days, God created the heavens and the earth. He's been working for 2,000 years to create his bride. At the end of those six days, he looked at it and said, man, that's good. That's very, very good. Imagine what he's going to say after 2,000 plus years of putting together his bride, the bride for his son. And he's going to say, man, that is a super, super building. And we're part of it. The moment you get an opportunity to downgrade yourself, say, I'm, not, I'm nothing, I don't have anything, you look at yourself, no, I am part of the holy temple that God has been taking 2,000 years to build. I may only be a brick in the bathroom, but I am part of that temple. So, and this is the place. Uh, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians talks about you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the word is plural. Because I wish we were Southerners. Y'all, you all are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And he's not only talking individually, but when you gather together, when we gather together, the Holy Spirit is there. There may be times you don't sense the Spirit. There may be times you don't feel the Spirit. But there are times when you believe the Spirit is in the midst of his people. Hovering over them like he did with the chaos of creation. And building it the way he wants, wants it to be built. Holy Spirit has been hovering over the cathedral God has been building. And has been making it every day. Not only you individually, but the corporate whole. He's making it God's place. And finally you have God's rule and blessing. You've been set free by him to serve him and to serve others. First uh, Peter 1 talks about the inheritance that we have been given. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again by, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power 
are being guarded through a faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And usually when we think of an inheritance, we think of something that's coming after a person has died. Well, that's not always true. Some people, when they have an inheritance, give out a certain amount throughout uh, until they die. I think in IRS terminology, you're allowed to give $12,000 a year to another person out of, your, uh, out of what you have. And someone with a great inheritance can do that over and over again for years. So you are enjoying your inheritance partially now, fully later. That's exactly what we're doing. This is God's rule and blessing. He is giving to us part of our inheritance right now. Blessing of his spirit, the blessing of, uh, he's gi of giving to us the gifts of the spirit that we may use them for serving. He's giving us the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And I would remind you, Galatians 5, that word fruit is a singular word. It's not plural. Fruit of the Spirit is like a tangerine. It's a tangerine, but you open it up and there are nine different parts of it. Okay, So you can't say, I don't have the fruit of joy. Yes, you do. You're just not exercising it. I don't have the fruit of patience. I don't want to pray for patience. I know what happens when I pray for patience. But you already have it. You just have to exercise it. That's, and, and that's part of the inheritance. Getting us ready for the final inheritance. Um, he is at work ruling us and blessing us and blessing us beyond measure. The book of Acts is simply... God at work showing us how messy the church is and yet how he works within it. Imagine you're Paul. You've been given this great opportunity to preach. And you are proclaiming the greatest mystery of all, that Christ in you is the hope of glory. So you go from city to city. And you, the first people you talk to are your own people, the Jews. You go in the tabernacle, you're a visiting rabbi, so they give you the scroll and you're allowed to open it up and preach. And after about half an hour, they go, we don't want to hear this. <laughs> and normally, wherever Paul went, a riot broke out. Maybe we need more riots in our life. No. He goes and a riot breaks out, but a church begins. And then he goes on to the next place and the next place. Uh, he finally ends up in Rome. And he ends up in Rome because he's a prisoner, because he has applied for asylum from the judicial courts down in Jerusalem. Appeals to Caesar. And while he's there, he's stuck in that house. John talked about it. He, he probably never got out of the house much. And later on, he would be in a prison cell. And here's a guy who's used to traveling and preaching and proclaiming, and he can't do it. So what does he do? He writes letters. And that's what the epistles are. The epistles are simply, and it's, it's on your second sheet, or third page, I'm sorry. To the background of, to understand the epistles, second, second sheet. 
Epistles were literary devices. They were meant to convey information. They didn't have a post office system. So they had to send them by servants or hire someone to send them. Uh, basically, they were there to maintain relationships. So this is the day before Skype, texting, email. And so it took a long process for someone to travel. But the person who came read the, read the letter, and then he had the freedom, as directed by the author, to embellish upon it, to basically work it out in that local situation. And that's what the, they were supposed, the epistles were specifically to do. They carried apostolic authority, as normally the apostles signed at the bottom, even if somebody else took it in shorthand and wrote it out, the final copy would be given and they put their signature on it. But in doing that, they were helping the church. First Corinthians, Second Corinthians, especially First Corinthians. Paul is simply, simply ask, answering questions. He'd worked there for about a year, 18 months, I think. He'd left and they sent him a whole bunch of questions. What do we do about this? We have a man who is shacked up with his stepmother. What do we do? And he says, are you kidding? <laughs> Nobody, not even the pagans do that. Get rid of him or deal with him. Discipline. What about marriage? What about the Lord's Supper? I mean, we got some people who come because the way they did it was they had a, a joint meal and then they shared the supper around the table. We got some people who come who don't bring any food to the potluck because they don't have any food. And so the some of the people eat everything they have and they're not sharing it. And then we're supposed to go have a supper that shows our unity and our oneness. And Paul is basically saying, you're making a travesty of, of communion because you're not living in communion with one another. Um, the other, other letters are exactly the same way. Uh, the book of Ephesians. Paul was there, but, and he was there for a while, but he still needed to summarize what he had taught them. And one of the reasons I like the book of Ephesians, it is the gospel of Christ to the gospel of the church. It tells the church, this is who you are, this is how you act. Uh, Galatians, or excuse me, First and Second Thessalonians. You know, Paul was only there for three weeks. Started a church, got kicked out of the city. So why does he write First and Second Thessalonians? He's got to tell them things he didn't have an opportunity to tell them, and encourage them to continue on, and to be able to stand before the onslaughts of the enemy. This, these are what the epistles are all about. And when you read them, you need to see them in the light of the background to whom they are going, but as well, what they have to say is the church as a whole. And, the, you know, this happened over the 30-some years of activity between Pentecost and the final imprisonment of Paul.
So, those are the epistles. The kingdom has a, a, arrived. It's being planted. It's growing. Uh, one of the things I did on your outline is to show how the progression of the church in the book of Acts was like the parables that Matthew gives in, 13th, in his 13th chapter. And one of them is the parable of wheat and tares. Man goes out, puts a seed into the ground, goes home. The next day he looks out and weeds are with the, the, the growth, the good seed. And the first question they ask is, uh, let's just get rid of the weeds. And the answer is, no, because in trying to get rid of the weeds, you're going to get rid of the good plants. The weeds will show themselves. And basically, that's what's happening in that early church. You're seeing the good plants, and you're seeing the weeds. And the epistles are ways in which to know, to know who are the weeds, what are the weeds, and how can you deal with them. Eventually, they'll be found out. There's a, a sifting that goes on between the wheat and the chaff. Um, they were dealing with the joys and frustration. You, you ever see little kids grow? Were you ever a little kid that grew up? You remember the joys and frustrations? Maybe you're going through them now. That's what the church was like. That's what the epistles were. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say rejoice. And somebody's Kicking somebody next to him say, are you kidding me? You see Charlie over there? Charlie, Charlie is the biggest problem we have in this church. Remember when you point your finger, they're three pointed back at you. <laughs> Charlie is the biggest problem we have in the church. And they said, no, be patient. You rejoice. There's a reason why Charlie's in that church. There is a reason. You may not know it, but there is a reason why Charlie's in that church. And and you deal with it. So, that's the proclaimed kingdom. Uh, I've given you a section on the sending of the Spirit as well as what I call the eight C's of the work of the Spirit. And I think that's pretty self-explanatory. And then there's an overview of the epistles uh, note in the overview when they when the the compilers of the New Testament put it together they didn't go from the earliest book to the latest there was a a function they especially in Paul's epistles you have the epistles that talk about salvation you have four epistles epistles that he wrote while he was in prison you have three that are pastoral epistles written to pastors saying. This is how you do your job. This is what ought to be expected. Uh, and you have two that are eschatological, dealing with the end times or dealing with the church focused on the end. And that's First and Second Thessalonians. Then you get into the general epistles that are, have specific areas. So that's primarily it. This is the proclaimed kingdom. This is what's taking place. You have God's people, Jews and Gentiles. Probably the biggest hurdle that they had was Jews accepting Gentiles and Gentiles wanting to live with Jews as brothers and sisters in Christ. 
being the new cathedral underneath God's rule and blessing. Not going on their own. And to think about it, you know, I think 2,000 years we've been doing this thing called church. And 2,000 years we go back to the basics over and over again. Back to these epistles. Yes, we study the life of Christ. Yes, we know the Old Testament. But more often than not, we'll be in the epistles because this tells us who Christ is, what he has done, how we ought to look at him. It helps explain the Gospels as well as the Old Testament prophecies. But it tells this is how you live as the people of God. As messy as it can be, this is how you live. See, you all have had a great advantage. You're not that messy. Oh, you're messy, <laughs> but you're not that messy. I've worked, I've lived, I've seen churches that are horrendously messy. See, because you people have a love for the Word of God and a love for Christ. Uh, we were talking beforehand about churches that are unfriendly. You can go there and nobody says hi. You go, how can that be for Christians? Because when I look at another Christian, I say, that's, that's my brother, that's my sister, that's family. They, you know, we, we both have the same Savior. We've been brought, bought by the same blood. We're together. I, I, I have no opportunity not to help them and say hi. And then you go to churches, probably, where there is this needs of Christ awakening for them to come to know who Christ is as well as to become Christians themselves and learn how to do it. And that's how you... You learn how to do it by the epistles and by looking at the book of Acts. Okay, with that, let's open to questions. Now, this could be a real short podcast. Okay. Yes, and that continued on for a long time. The Amish and the Mennonites still do that. You know, one of the first times I came here, I thought, Are you guys Mennonites? Because you go down for lunch afterwards. No, they, they do practice that hospitality and that generosity. Um, the church becomes institutionalized and wants to do things quickly, orderly, nicely and so you come up and you get a wafer and a cup and you got to make sure which is it from the bronze or from the the gold or whatever it's silver and then you uh you you take it now they gathered they gathered in houses they didn't have church buildings or they may have gathered in caves 
so that they would be safe from people coming and uh, attacking them. And they, they gathered for worship. They sat around. You may have had somebody with a harp or they sang a cappella. They sang, or they knew the tunes to the Psalms, which we don't know. And they sang and they worshiped. And then at the end, they said, okay, let's go eat. And they'd have their potluck. And at the end of the potluck, the uh, leaders would get up and say, it's time to have the Lord's Supper. We've been fed. We have fed. Let's be fed again. And so they celebrate. They probably, a big, big, big chunk of a loaf of bread. I mean, one that you could see at the back of a hundred yard uh, cathedral. And they lift it up and they tear it open. And they said, the body of Christ. And they hold up this chalice and they pour the wine in. Because they did use wine, not grape juice. They poured the wine in and they lifted it up so that you could see the blood of Christ being poured out, visualizing what happened on the cross. And they went through the Sunday after Sunday. You know, I, I thought we ought to suggest to the elders. Any of them? I'm just... <laughs> You're in training. I'll train you. They say, what we ought to do is we have worship. And then we go downstairs and eat. And while we're downstairs... We have communion around the table because then you pass it along to each other and then you take the cup and you pass that around. See, that's the communion. That's community. Uh, you know, I come from a tradition where the elders take it and pass it out and they come back and you've got a certain amount of time. You've got to figure out how to do that and you've got to get done because we have to be out of here by 12 o'clock. We can't go to 12.01. And uh, they missed the whole idea of the community part of communion. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they didn't have buildings. They had, they had people who had huge buildings, or huge houses. And they had houses that had courtyards. So you could go to the courtyard and hopefully it didn't rain while you were out there. Or you brought your umbrella, or the old equivalent of an umbrella. And you worshipped. You may not even have had chairs. You may have had to stand the whole time. And in fact, in some European cathedrals, they still do that. The congregation stands, the leaders get to sit. And I'm going, yes! <laughs> Especially when you're not feeling well, yes! <laughs> Okay, other questions? Other thing about Acts or the epistles? Let me ask you that. Which is your favorite epistle? If you were going to be on a, 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 a deserted island and you were only allowed to have one of the epistles, which one would you like to have? Excuse me? No, 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 no. You get one. Hebrews? And that's because and that's the focus. Romans is a good one, but 
Yeah, the last from <laughs> from well, maybe there's six of us and we each picked a different book. Um, but you're right. From chapter 12 to 16, you may not need a whole lot of that. And 1 to 11 may not mean a whole lot either because it's relational. Okay, Hebrews is an excellent book. My, one of my favorite of the epistles is Ephesians because I've worked with the church my whole life. And I've always wanted to be able to say to a congregation, this is who we are, this is how we act. In fact, even as an interim, Ephesians is one of those books I preach over and over at every church because I'm trying to train them how to be a, a church. What, what needs to change before the new pastor comes? But I'm going, why? On a deserted island? There's, there's only me. How can I deal with the fruit of the Spirit when it's all relational and it's only me? Unless you think I have a split personality. <laughs> yeah. What else? What? Love it. <laughs> it may be controversial. Yes, that's what we want. And what, yeah, the idea that early church thought Jesus was coming back in their lifetime, therefore, he hasn't come back. And the epistles are supposed to give us an idea of when he's coming back and what it's going to be like. And it hasn't happened for 2,000 years, and we're left here in, the, in, in this whole time period good book on that is and it's back there you can buy it in the in the library the bookstore is uh, R.C. Sproul's The Last Days According to Jesus and the point of the book is I think what is the point of the New Testament they never Jesus never said that there was going to be a physical return in the life of the disciples of the apostles there was going to be a return but the return would be the destruction of Jerusalem so that now that old had passed away, behold, the new has come. And so they were not expecting him to come by 70 AD physically. And they also looked to say wherever God is doing something and something cataclysmic, we would call it a reformation. Jesus has come back. Not physically, but he has come back. 
Now, we have people like the Millerites, or I think that's the Jehovah's Witnesses, who said, and they said, well, by 1911, Jesus will be here. Calendar turns to 1912. And they said, well, he did come. We just didn't see him. Well, that's really convenient because you can't prove that one. Uh, there are hints within the New Testament, uh, the teachings of Jesus, and in Revelation that they said he, he will come soon, but he will not come physically. He says, just watch for his coming. Watch when he breaks in to do something. The great spiritual awakening of the 1700s. Jesus broke into uh, pagan America and a pagan England and just turned the church upside down and just created a new impetus for the church to do its work. 58 to 59 in the 1800s, 1858, 59. A businessman has the impression to start praying at noon at his local church. I think it was uh, an Episcopal church downtown, New York. And all of a sudden some friends come and they start praying. And you have the beginning of another great awakening. 58 to 59 of the 1800s. You know what? Remember what happened in 1860, 61? Beginning of the bloodiest wars that they had known up to that time but the awakening had so gone through the country that many of the soldiers were Christ followers you know and you could hear at night in the army camps hymns being sung they didn't do praise courses back then hymns being sung because of what Christ had broken in and done something that's the sense of his coming if we want a Christ awakening and we pray for it and work for it, that would be another of his coming. When it's going to come, Jesus was quite clear about this. Nobody knows the day or the hour except the Father, not even the Son. Now, it doesn't mean in his divine nature he didn't know. He knows quite fully. But in his human nature, he didn't know. So you have some people who say, yeah, we don't know the day or the hour, but we sure can know the month and the time, year. <laughs> yeah, there are people who say that. In fact, if you drive up 75 by, before you get to Lima, there's a church that says, it's 1158, Jesus is coming soon. It's been there. That, that clock hasn't changed in 20 years. <laughs> I'm going, no. The epistles were meant to say, this is how you live until he comes back. And we don't know when he's coming back. Even the book of Revelation, we'll go into that next time, says, behold, I am coming soon. Somebody told you, behold, I am coming soon. What would you think? Well, he might be here within 2,000 years. Now, you, would ex you would get the table ready and you would expect them to be there soon several times in the book of revelation it says that and but people will take it and will extrapolate it way past our own times or within the next few months harold camping who said in 1985 he would come and they said oh, i was wrong 86 
Oh, no, I'm wrong. <laughs> you know, finally he died, so he couldn't, couldn't do that anymore. No, no, no. He's, Jesus said, watch and wait. Watch and wait. That book by R.C. Sproul is super. will help you understand some of this. So, yeah, we live in what we call the already and not yet. In one sense, it's already. He's come. He does his work in and through us. In another sense, it's not yet. He will return. So, maybe you can take heart from first, Second Peter. A day with the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. Well, and some people say that's what he means by soon. Now, the, the two don't go together. It says, we've been here 2,000 years since Christ. That's two days. And if he's coming at the end of the seventh day, we've got another 5,000 years. So don't sell your stock. Keep your IRAs. Okay, Anvish. Okay, so question is: has, Is the is the present church better than the the past, the early church? Have have we progressed? Yes and no. Yes, because we've had two thousand years of teaching, studying the word, understanding, understanding how to be the church. And in two thousand years, we've learned a lot. We have the examples of an Augustine, a Calvin, a Luther. Others, uh, many others, confessions, catechisms that help us understand how then should should we live. And in that sense, we're a whole lot better than the early church. That you have a copy of the scriptures on your smartphone, that you have a copy of a study Bible in your smartphone, when back then, most of them didn't even have a part of a parchment of the scriptures. They had to memorize it. Uh, we are far better off with all the tools and everything we have. Are we better off? No. We're still as messy. We still have the same problems. The same issues they dealt with, we deal with over and over again. I mean, in church in North America, we deal with heresies that Nicene Creed, Nicene Council dealt with and basically said, that's it, that's... You know, you say this, it's one God, uh, two per three persons. Jesus is God, man, uh, not integrated, not separated. There one, two persons, or two natures in one person. After that, you can't say much more than that. It says, yeah, we have that. But we have people who deny that over and over again. Jesus, you know, I clergy 
Jesus was simply a great teacher, a wonderful man. And, and then you go, yeah, but you know what he taught? He taught, I'm God. What kind of wonderful man says, I'm God? You listen to me. You don't listen to anybody else. You, you know, how, you know, we go through the same heresies over and over again. Health, wealth, and prosperity is nothing than many of the early heresies. They just don't have the background to understand that what they're saying is heresy. If we were Old Testament, we'd take them out and stone them. But we're a little bit more gracious. We just turn off the TV and stop supporting. And we say, you really are asking for money for a $54 million jet so you don't have to fly commercially here to there? Um, so, yeah, it's, people are the same. Christians are the same. We, we all have our messy sides, no matter how good we look. And that's why we live by grace. Man, if we had to live by what we did, we would all be depressed. <laughs> we should be depressed if that's how we're living. There's no hope. Okay, so it's going to be that way. Building is a messy job. You, you watch buildings go up and you see the dust fly and the stuff that's left over that they haven't swept up. It's messy. That's the way it is. You'll find that in India. It's going to be messy. You have people coming out of far different backgrounds than what we have here. And it's going to take them a while to get from their background to Christian living. And you've got to put up with them. I mean, you just got to love them. It's like kids. Eventually they grow up. They may be 50, but eventually they grow up. <laughs> okay? That's the joy of being older, where your kids have grown up and you look at them. And with my knee problem, my son and daughter-in-law, their family come over and do a lot of the yard work I ought to be doing. And I say, they volunteer for that. And I said, where did they learn that? <laughs> <laughs> and you see, you, you finally see the effect that you've had. Little by little, the church has an effect where it's really the church. Okay, anything else? So read your epistles. That's why I like the discipleship journal reading plan. Because it takes you through Acts, so you get a view of the that of those first thirty years of or thirty-five years of the church. And then you read the epistles and you go through them the rest of the year, because then you get an idea of what the apostles were trying to teach. It's also why I don't like people who say well, we should just be red-letter Christians. Just read the red letters in your Gospels and that's all you need. No, 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 no. It's the whole Word. That's the Word of God. And the epistles help you understand what the red letters was all about. And even the red letters were written by apostles. 
<laughs> okay. Any other questions? Comments? Okay, July 22nd. I come back from vacation. We have our last class, number 13. If you're superstitious, get over it. Deal with it before then. Uh, unless you're on vacation, be here, because we're going to take a good look at the book of Revelation and uh, help you understand how to understand it, how to deal with it. Okay, that'll be good stuff. I, it, I hopefully, hopefully it'll be good stuff. And that is the, where the proclaimed kingdom moves into being the fulfillment of paradise. Back to paradise, back to the garden. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for wisdom that comes from your word. Thank you for opportunities to share with one another. Most of all, we thank you for guiding the apostles and their surrogates as they wrote book like Acts all the way down through Jude. And that it is your word to us, infallible, inerrant, that which is to be implicitly trusted because it has your authority behind it. And that which helps us understand how then we live as followers of Christ, of little Christian, little Christ, of being Christians. As we read, send your Holy Spirit to guide and direct it and take what we've said today that's from you, cement it into hearts and minds that we may be able to walk in accordance with who you are. For ask it in Jesus' name.